Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this is a collaboration between the IWMS and Cancer Care. Um, and um, it's really been a wonderful collaboration. It's going on for about six years, and um, uh, many of you are on the call because of your connection to IWMS, which is just a wonderful organization, um, and you'll be hearing more about it um, later into the program. Um, and today's program is also involves many other organizations as well, cancer organizations, and between all of us, um, we have really worked hard to spread the word about this program, and because of that, we have on the program today over 1,368 people on the call. That's a huge call. And um, most of you are from the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, but we also have international participants from Australia, Brazil, Cameroon, Canada, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call, and the interest is, is tremendous at this point in this, in this topic and this program. Um, today's program has been made possible, uh, it's supported uh, by uh, Pharmaceuticals LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, um, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker for today is Dr. Stephen Trion. And Dr. Trion is Director, Bing Center for Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia, um, Professor, Harvard Medical School, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And actually, I, when I welcomed all of you, I asked you, welcoming you to the latest news in the treatment of Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia, or WM. Um, and Dr. Uh, Trion is going to be addressing what's new in the treatment of WM, um, symptoms and signs, um, frontline treatment for WM, standard of care, new treatment approaches and clinical trials, and communicating with healthcare team. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Trion. Thank you so much, um, Carolyn. It's uh, really a uh, pleasure for me to be here. Um, I know that for many of you, um, COVID-19 is probably more on your minds these days than Waldenstrom is. And I just want to uh, let you know that um, we stand there with you. These are very, very trying times. Um, and um, many of us are now working and looking at the possibility of even repurposing some of the drugs that we've helped develop uh, in the fight against uh, COVID-19. I'm sure there'll be some questions at the end of uh, this uh, talk um, and we certainly will try to take as many as possible on this um, you know, important um, development. Um, Carolyn had tasked me in the meantime, though, uh, to talk a little bit about Waldenstrom's, particularly focusing on frontline developments. And I think it's really important for all of us to keep in mind that patients uh, who have Waldenstrom's can present uh, many different ways 
Typically, anemia is at the uh, center of how a patient presents. This because you see this overcrowding of the bone marrow by Waldenstrom cells, but also you can see uh, certain proteins that destroy red blood cells also cause anemia. And many patients are actually iron deficient because the Waldenstrom cells themselves can either make or induce the production of a protein called hepcidin. It actually prevents iron from being absorbed from the gut. And it also causes iron that's present um, uh, in the body to be sequestered by uh, certain cells called monocytes. And in doing so, they prevent red blood cells from getting it. This is important to keep in mind because using intravenous IV iron supplementation can often correct um, the anemia uh, if a patient is showing uh, very low levels of, uh, of iron. Now, the other way patients can present is by making a lot of the IgM protein. This can, of course, lead to thickening of the blood. We call this hyperviscosity. And uh, this can have many manifestations, including uh, leading to bleeding. Um, it can cause um, you know, injury, particularly to the eye, because there uh, you can see bleeding from the, in the retina. Um, and so this usually happens when the IgM uh, is over 6,000 milligrams per deciliter. For those in Europe or elsewhere, it's 60 grams per liter. The IgM can also attack various structures, including red blood cells. Um, they, it can deposit in colder parts of the body, the fingertips or uh, toes or nose or ears, and cause what we call cryoglobulins, and this actually prevents blood from getting there. Some of you may be familiar with the term Renaud's. This is uh, you know, a problem that can produce Renaud-like problems. Uh, neuropathy is a big problem. Almost a quarter of all patients with Waldenstrom can present with neuropathy, most often because the IgM that's made by the cells can attack uh, the nerve um, sheath, the myelin, and this usually can cause a, a neuropathy that starts in the toes and ascends on upwards. We also do see enlarged lymph nodes in patients, although this tends to be a later manifestation of the disease. And also more uncommonly, uh, the um, Waldenstrom cells can also get in the brain. And this is um, a process that we call the Bing-Neal syndrome. And uh, you know, I want to tell you a little bit about some of the exciting developments and how we treat this. Now, traditionally, we've treated Waldenstrom's with rituximab, either alone or in combination therapy. Um, rituximab by itself will um, induce a remission in about 30 to 40% of patients, but it usually lasts for only about a year, year and a half. There are some people that can have even longer responses, but that's usually what you see with rituximab alone. And for this reason, we were very keen to try to extend the life of uh, rituxan efficacy by combining it with drugs, particularly drugs that we also use uh, in other lymphomas or in multiple myeloma. And the most commonly used these days are uh, either a proteasome inhibitor, you've heard of bortezomib or Velcade. There's also carfilzomib and exazomib that we've combined with rituximab, but also bendamustine. This is a very important drug Christian will certainly be telling us a lot more about it because this drug uh, started in, um, in Germany. So Christian Buskey is the next speaker after me. Now with uh, these combinations, you know, the response rates have gone up dramatically. 
Uh, and the time that patients remain, you know, free of disease progression also has gone up. So it's not uncommon to see four to six years now if you're newly diagnosed to be in remission because of one of these combinations. Now, maintenance rituximab, which I hope Christian will talk to us a little bit more about too, um, is often employed. Uh, we use it here in the United States quite often. There is now new data that suggests that uh, there may be benefit uh, for particularly older patients, those 65 or older, um, or which isn't really that old if you think about it, um, and also patients who may have high-risk disease. So I'm really hoping that um, Christian Buskey will tell us more about this. Uh, now, many of the drugs that we use can also have side effects. I won't go into all of them at this point, but the reason why I say this is that when you try to make a choice about what drug to use, one has to keep in mind these short-term as long as, along with long-term toxicities in mind, you know, and as well as why you're treating the patient. That's very, very important into how we select a particular therapy for a patient. Now, with all this in mind, you know, we still felt it important to try to understand the basis of the disease and therefore try to innovate. And with the help of uh, the IWMF and with uh, Peter Bing, uh, who was one of our uh, major benefactors, we were able to do whole genome sequencing. And this identified the MYD88 mutation. This is a mutation that's found in about 95%, uh, um, maybe upwards to 97% of all Waldenstrom patients. And what this mutation does is it actually turns on a number of very important kinases, which are like enzymes. And one of the ones that it turns on is BTK. This is the target of the Brutinib drug as well as other BTK inhibitors that I'll just talk about briefly. There is also another mutation that was also discovered because of the whole genome sequencing, and this is the CXCR4 mutation. This is found in about 40% of patients, and it actually affects the way a patient can present. The patients that have the higher IgM or hyperviscosity tend to be CXCR4 mutated patients in addition to MID88. Uh, CXCR4 can also confer relative drug resistance, and uh, we know this to be true also with Ibrutinib and other drugs. Now, why, uh, you know, how have these mutations helped us? Well, they helped us because by understanding their mechanism, they prompted us to look at BTK inhibitors, and we did a very important trial um, of ibrutinib in relapsed refractory patients, patients that had already been treated. And this was the pivotal trial that led to the approval of ibrutinib in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Um, we just updated this trial. It's been submitted for publication. And uh, the overall response rate was about 90%. And about 80% of the patients had what we call a major response. And even about 30% had a very deep response, a very good partial response. And the way the patients responded had to do a lot with their genomics. If you only had the mediated mutation, you did the best. If you didn't have the mutation at all, uh, you really didn't have major responses. And if you had both mutations, you actually sat somewhere in the middle. And, uh, and these patients also took much longer. If you had CXCR4 and MID88, they took longer to respond versus the patients that only had the MID88 mutation. So it influenced not only the depth of response, but also how long it took to get there. But more importantly, it also influenced how long a patient stayed in a remission.
if they had only mid-88, they actually did well. In fact, about 70-plus percent at five years are still in a remission. Those that had both mutations, it was about four years' time that they were in a remission on average. And those that had no mid-88 mutation uh, progressed very, very rapidly. Now, we had similar results in the trial that we also ran in patients that had not been treated previously. So in treatment-naive patients, the data uh, is very, very similar. And excitingly with ibrutinib, we also saw uh, activity in the patients that had involvement of the brain, the Bing-Neal syndrome, particularly at higher doses of ibrutinib. And this is now how we're treating patients who develop Bing-Neal syndrome. Now, understanding the um, way MIDI-D8 works has also prompted now some other BTK inhibitors to be developed for Waldenstrom specifically. A very important uh, new BTK inhibitor, acalabrutinib. Uh, the data for about 100 patients uh, who were treated with this who had Waldenstrom's was just published in, um, in Lancet uh, Hematology and showed very similar response rates uh, as ibrutinib. Zanubrutinib, this is also a nice new BTK inhibitor, um, also has shown very similar rates of, um, of high response rates as ibrutinib. There is a randomized trial uh, which just um, was reported. However, it was reported in a press release and still um, will be presented at a meeting uh, very shortly so we can get more details. But it, it showed, in fact, that with zanubrutinib, one saw you know, very high levels of activity, um, maybe in some patients even deeper responses, but the side effect profile uh, also appeared to be very different with zanubrutinib patients having less uh, atrial fibrillation um, versus ibrutinib. Um, important to keep in mind that dosing for these drugs is different. Ibrutinib is once a day, whereas acalabrutinib and zanubrutinib are given uh, twice a day. So there is an issue of uh, convenience that one has to keep in mind as well. Now, in terms of new and exciting things, um, well, you've heard about these new BTK inhibitors, but one of the things that you know remains a concern is the fact that CXCR4-mutated patients, um, they tend to have this lag in response and they don't get the deep responses or as long responses as those that don't have it. So there is actually data now on two um, you know, new drugs. The first one is ulocuplumab, um, which is an inhibitor of CXCR4. This has been um, used with ibrutinib in a phase one study, and there's actually some very encouraging preliminary data. And there is a second oral inhibitor called Movarexa4 that blocks CXCR4. This will be entering into clinical trials uh, very, very shortly, but it does give us the uh, hope and promise that we may actually have an oral inhibitor of CXCR4 to go along with uh, ibrutinib or the other BTK inhibitors. Now, my colleague, uh, Hori Castillo, has also been working on the drug venetoclax. Uh, those of you who may be familiar with this drug know it's an oral drug that actually blocks a very interesting protein called BCL2. BCL2 actually is important to keeping Waldenstrom cells alive. And uh, Hori was able to show uh, in his uh, trial, it was, it was a phase two trial, that the overall response rate was somewhere around 90% with this drug 
um, which included also patients that had previously been exposed to ibrutinib. So the activity was shown uh, even in people that had seen ibrutinib. So it becomes an interesting new drug for patients that may be progressing on ibrutinib. There's also some very exciting data uh, generated in our laboratory and also by others showing that when you combine venetoclax with ibrutinib, you can actually um, cause more tumor cell death. And in CLL and mantle cell patients, it's been shown to be a very effective combination leading to even deeper responses. So there is now this very new and exciting uh, trial that will be opening, combining the two drugs together in patients who have not been previously treated. The last thing I just want to touch basis on is ibrutinib resistance. We're seeing this as you know, patients have been on the drug for long periods of time. It's still a relatively uncommon thing, but nonetheless, we need to be ready. And there are now these new BTK inhibitors that actually bind at other sites uh, other than where ibrutinib or acalabrutinib or zanubrutinib bind. And these are turning out to be very interesting um, new drugs um, that may help us treat those patients who, you know, present with um, uh, ibrutinib resistance. Lastly, uh, the challenge remains for those patients that don't have the mid-88 mutation. We know that many of them harbor mutations that um, allow their so cells to grow and survive that are, you know, below BTK. We are still trying to figure out how to best to treat you know, these patients, but for the time being, bendamustine or uh, the use of bortezomib um, appears to be um, the most appropriate way to treat patients who do not have the mediate mutation. Um, important to keep in mind, it's also important to make sure that these patients don't have some other type of malignancy, including IgM myeloma, when no mediate is detected. And sometimes this can be a testing error, so one needs to keep this in mind. And with that, I'll uh, come to a conclusion and uh, thank, uh, you know, Carolyn uh, for um, allowing me the opportunity to give you this update. I'm now going to introduce Dr. Busky, and Dr. Um, so we um, are now going to move on to Dr. Busky's presentation. Uh, Dr. Christian Busky is the um, medical director, uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center and Institute Experimental Cent Cancer Research, University of Ulm. Um, attending physician and professor of medicine, medical department for internal medicine three, hematology oncology, University Hospital, Ulm, Germany. Dr. Whiskey is going to be addressing treatment for relapsed refractory WM. Um, he's going to talk about communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, symptoms and side effect management, including reducing complications, peripheral neuropathy, managing the future of WM. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Busky. Yeah, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to, to join this very exciting um, program. And uh, yeah, um, as you heard, I have many topics um, and 15 minutes, so I will try to put in uh, everything, but uh, uh, you have to know that, of course, we have a lot of time to discuss then in more detail certain aspects which uh, Steve and I could not touch too much because of the time time limit. So um, I would like to start to, to tell you a little bit about uh, what we can do for patients with relapsed refractory violence strains. And I think the first important message is that um, even uh, when you have a relapse or refractory disease, there is a 
quite wide option uh, for different treatments. So we have different choices to treat you uh, and, and excellent choices. And uh, I think this is important to, to know that um, we not only have one treatment, but uh, a choice between different treatment options, which are all more or less excellent. So this also allows us, in a, as a general principle, that we individualize treatment. So we can first look uh, at our patient, uh, our patient's characteristic, the age, comorbidities, uh, and um, yeah, also even patient wish, but also importantly, of course, how this patient was treated uh, before. Uh, in first line, we can look uh, whether this is the first relapse, the second relapse, third relapse, and then see you know um, uh, which drugs were used before. And also a very important point, we can uh, look um, at uh, the duration of response um, of the previous treatments. So every patient has its individual characteristics. Uh, every patient is unique. Uh, and we have uh, the possibility, as I said, to adapt uh, our treatment uh, for these um, um, relapse repertory settings. So which kind of treatments do we have in general? So actually we have, um, um, similar to the first-line treatment, we have the option to give a rituximab chemotherapy combination then there is uh, the possibility to use a proteasome inhibitor, which is bortezomib. We have the poss possibility to use BPK inhibitors. Uh, Steve already um, uh, explained this to you, such as ibutinib or the second generation BTK uh, inhibitors. And we have the possibility to um, use, uh, for instance, ibutinib in combination um, with rituximab. Of course, I think it's important to um, also to mention that when you have a relapsed refractory Weidenstrom disease, there are many clinical trials actually offered in the United States by Steve and in Europe by the European Consortium for Weidenstrom's macroglobulinemia, which I'm coordinating. And in these clinical trials, you also get offered, um, you know, very new, innovative and, and efficient um, treatments. So now, of course, you would have, probably you have the question, um, um, perhaps a little bit in more detail, which treatment options we have and when would we use which treatment for you in the relapsed um, refractory setting. So um, as I said, there is no standard approach because every patient is um, different. But uh, as a general guideline, um, what we take into account is your fitness and very importantly, the nature of the previous treatment and the duration of response to the previous treatment, which means when you have had, um, for instance, rituximab chemotherapy first line and you have a very long duration of response, which means that you had a great clinical benefit um, from this previous treatment, then it's an option to use again rituximab chemotherapy. In the contrary, when you have a very short duration of response, this means that you were repertory or at least um, less responsive. And this means that you would always go for an alternate treatment. Meaning that if you have the situation of our chemotherapy and you have a very long duration of response, you can repeat 
the rituximab-based regimen or use an alternate rituximab-based chemotherapy, when you have a very short duration of response, um, then um, you would not use anymore the same concept of treatment, but you would go, for instance, for ibrutinib. This is a general principle. Yeah, when I say that you look at the fitness of patients, um, it means that um, we take this into account in that sense that we try to de-escalate um, the treatment in the relapse setting with the same general principles I mentioned before. Because we have always to keep in mind in Wildenstrom that it's a chronic-like disease and quality of life is very, very important. And we don't, whenever possible, don't want to compromise your quality of life. Our aim is to control the disease out in a relapse setting uh, with the best quality of life possible. So this is why we then more de-escalate according uh, to your fitness. So when we go now a little bit into more detail, um, which, um, um, which treatments there are, um, for rituximab-based um, chemotherapy, um, internationally we recommend two regimens. One uh, is called DRC, which is dexamethasone. So this is a very strong cortisone, uh, rituximab, uh, and cyclophosphamide. Um, the DRC regimen is is efficient. Yeah, um, it has less side effects with regard to hematotoxicity, so suppression of your bone marrow, um, compared, for instance, to rituximab bendamustin, which is the second regimen which we are recommending. Rituximab bendamustin, as Steve mentioned, is really an East German development uh, 50 years ago, uh, and it uh, um, experienced actually a revival in Germany and then also internationally and also now in the U.S., um, because it's highly efficient, it's more efficient than DRC, which I mentioned before, uh, but it has um, it has more, um, let's say, toxicity with regard to, to your bone marrow, and it's also um, yeah, quite um, strong in suppression, uh, a certain uh, subgroup of immune cells in your body. But these two regimens are actually recommended as our chemo. So for bortezomib, the proteasome inhibitors, bortezomib is a, let's say, well-established um, um, compound in multiple myeloma and also in Wildenstrom. We in Europe, we like to combine it with rituximab. We give it um, under the skin, so not intravenously, um, because when you give it under the skin, or we call it subcutaneously, uh, it has less neurotoxicity, so it's less damaging your neurons which is a possible side effect of bortezomib, and we give it once a week. So then when we go to the BTK inhibitors, um, ibrutinib, as Steve already said, is the most powerful single agent which we have. It's chemo-free. It's given orally, which is very convenient. And we know that uh, it has a high activity also in patients with a short duration of response to conventional R chemotherapy. What we also know is uh, that um, um, ibotinib um, is acting um, in patients who are refractory to a rituximab-containing regimen. So there was a large international trial uh, where we participated and uh, which we also in some way coordinated from the European Consortium, which looked at patients being um, refractory to rituximab and uh, ibotinib single agent is very uh, efficient also in these patients. 
So when we stay um, um, with the therapies available in the relapse setting, um, we have also to take a little bit care for the genotypes, for the mutational status. Again, Steve mentioned this, the two genes, MID88 and CXCR4. And what we know is that ibotinib single agent uh, loses some uh, efficacy in patients who have both genes mutated or have both genes non-mutated. And this international trial I mentioned before had a portion where patients were randomized between ibotinib rituximab versus rituximab single agent, and uh, ibotinib rituximab was much better than rituximab alone. This was not surprising. But probably the most interesting result was that when you combine ibotinib with rituximab, it looks like that when you have a double mutated genotype uh, where ibotinib single agent is not working that well anymore, ibotinib rituximab is doing very well. So this is why we are offering patients with double mutation ibotinib rituximab in Europe, which is also approved and reimbursed in Germany. So the also quite encouraging data uh, were seen for ibotinib rituximab in non-mutated MIT-88-CXCR4 patients where ibotinib single agent has the weakest activity, but the number of patients in this trial was quite low, so we have to be uh, a little bit cautious um, about this. So I think these are the treatment options which we have, of course, we, as I said, we can uh, continue to, to discuss and there are new developments. There are alternate uh, BTK inhibitors which are still not approved uh, in, in Europe. So in, in Europe, um, ibotinib plus minus rituximab is actually our standard BTK um, inhibitor. But again, the take home message is we have excellent different treatment options with our chemo with a PTK inhibitor in ibotinib, with a proteasome inhibitor bortezomib, and we are already able to individualize treatment according to your fitness, your age, and even to your genotype to, uh, with regard to the mutation of the two genes uh, Steve um, mentioned. So this is the treatment of relapsed refractory um, patients. Uh, then I was asked to uh, talk a little bit about symptoms or side effect management. So this is, of course, a huge uh, field. Uh, um, I think, again, as a general remark, um, our goal is indeed to treat you without compromising quality of life, at least to try to do this. And this is why, um, actually, we really try not to over-treat uh, you as our patients. So having always in mind that um, it is never our aim to kill the last, let's say, cancer cell, which is very, very difficult, but really to to get you into a long, long remission where you can enjoy life and you live with the disease. So this is why, for instance, uh, when we look at rituximab chemotherapy, and I mentioned the rituximab bendamustin regimen, that we are very generous in, in reducing the number of cycles and uh, also the dose of bendamustine per cycle. So rituximab bendamustine was uh, developed um, for instance for another subtype of lymphoma, for liquid lymphoma, and here we give six cycles of uh, rituximab bendamustine and we give 90 milligram per square meter of, of bendamustine. So for Wallenström, Actually, our recommendation is uh, not to give six cycles, but to, to stick to four cycles. 
uh, and to see how the patient tolerates it and if it's necessary even to go down to three cycles or to reduce the dose of bendamustine from 90 to, to 70 milligrams. So I think this is a very efficient way how to avoid side effects yeah, by, uh, by really taking uh, into account that we should not overtreat our patients. So when we go to rituximab, rituximab has side effects and some patients even do not tolerate rituximab. Yeah, and um, so, um, for instance, in, in that case, yeah, we, we try, of course, to, you know, to lower the infusion rate, uh, to, to give pre-medication, including corticosteroids, but there's also the possibility to, to switch to another anti-CD20 antibody, such as ofatumumab, uh, which is sometimes then quite well tolerated, even in the case of rituximab um, uh, um, intolerability. With regard to bortezomib, the proteasome inhibitor, I think we are very aware of the side effects that it can induce neuropathy. Uh, and this is why, as I said, we uh, give it once weekly uh, and we combine it with rituximab, as I said, and we give it uh, under the skin, so subcutaneously. But also here, we are very generous in dose reducing or even stopping the drug when there's any sign of developing or emerging neuropathy. So ibutinib, of course, has side effects, but um, normally it's very well tolerated. Um, but uh, yeah, there are patients who need dose reductions, who need pausing. Um, and um, yeah, so let's say the general principle with ibutinib is that we try everything not to pause this uh, drug. Ibutinib is, uh, uh, follows the concept of a permanent treatment. Uh, so whenever it's possible, we do not stop ibotinib, but would then try to dose reduce ibotinib um, uh, to reduce um, side effects. Um, if we have to, to stop or to pause, we know that a certain number of patients has, uh, has difficulties with this. They develop um, yeah, um, constitutional symptoms, fever, for instance, they get sometimes even an increase in IgM very quickly. And, uh, but I think our physicians know how to handle also these side effects by using, for instance, steroids or anti-inflammatory um, agents. Ibotinib has um, other side effects, um, which um, refer to, for instance, um, yeah, um, bleeding tendency, for instance, hypertension, um, arith arrhythmia and uh, things like this. Um, I think it would be now to go too far to, to go through all this, but um, they are very nice, uh, um, let's say, um, recommendations published, international consensus guidelines published, how to use, for instance, anticoagulation in ibotinib-treated um, patients, how to deal with diarrhea uh, induced by, by ibotinib, um, um, and so on. So I think uh, the knowledge how to handle these ibotinib side effects is, is widespread in the, uh, uh, in the community. So um, as uh, Steve said, there are alternative um, BTK inhibitors like acalabrutinib, which have a slightly different um, 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 side effect profile. Yeah, um, so it, it can be also an idea when you do not tolerate ibotinib that you switch to one of the newer ones. Acalabotinib, for instance, has a higher rate of, of headaches, but it's perhaps less, has less cardiac toxicity, although the data in BioStream are still uh, quite limited. 
So I have to move on because the next topic is neuropathy. So neuropathy is um, uh, a very important um, symptom, uh, sometimes quite devastating for patients. Uh, it's painful or uh, you lose um, yeah, um, feeling or the sensory deficits, let's say, as we say. So it's a very clinically important uh, symptom uh, which patients can account up to 20, 25% of patients developing this. And it's quite difficult to treat, we have to say. Just to mention, uh, again, there are very nice uh, international consensus guidelines how to deal with this. Um, and I think what is important for you to know is neuropathy can come from your Weidenstrom's disease, but there are many other reasons why you could have neuropathy. I think the first very important job for your treating doctor is to find out, which sometimes is difficult, whether your neuropathy comes from the Weidenstrom or from other diseases you might have, such as diabetes, or the use of alcohol, um, drugs, and so on. So uh, at the beginning, there is a very thoroughful diagnostic necessary to really assure uh, that uh, your neuropathy originates um, from Wallenstrom's disease. So then, of course, what uh, physician, physicians are doing or what we are doing, we are talking very closely with our neurologists. And because they are very experienced to, to look at the nature of the neuropathy you have. And from the nature of the neuropathy, you can already um, interpret or know a little bit better whether it comes from Wallenstrom or from other diseases. You can also do laboratory diagnostic workup because in Wallenstrom, the development of antibodies which are targeting the neurons are very typical. And from all this, your treating a doctor gets a feeling whether you have indeed a Wallenstrom-associated neuropathy. This is important because treatment um, is then um, perhaps, um, not only perhaps, but in most cases different uh, compared to neuropathies which, for instance, are developing in patients who have just, let's say, um, an IgM but no Wallenstrom because when it's a Wallenstrom-associated um, Neuropathy, of course, one of the major goals is to treat also your Wallenstrom, which is the underlying cause of neuropathy. And with this um, treatment, um, really um, um, is orienting itself to the treatment we also use uh, for um, um, controlling your Wallenstrom. So, um, as I said, we can discuss this later on because I have to come um, to an um, end. So just to mention quality of life, um, I mentioned this, this is very important, quality of life. Um, it's not easy to, to measure, um, but fortunately in Wildstrom, uh, or to put it in a different way, Wildstrom is one of the very few uh, B-cell lymphomas where we can indeed correlate quality of life with treatment. Um, and this was very nicely shown for ibotinib. So when you take ibotinib in a clinical trial, you see very nicely uh, in this case, this was um, ibotinib single agent or ibotinib plus rituximab. You can see very nicely that your quality of life increases with the with the start of treatment um, of ibotinib. So I think just to mention, um, there are uh, several efforts to to learn more about the quality of life of Wildenstrom patients, and um, just uh, to say there are different registries which actually uh, try also to incorporate. Uh, a questionnaire about your quality of life, for instance, the WIMSICAL, 
um, it's a very nice um, um, registry um, which is actually patient driven. So the patients themselves enter their data and this registry or this um, survey, let's say, um, um, yeah, allows you to put in your quality of life data. And with this, I think we will learn a lot uh, about the quality of life in patients with violence syndrome before treatment, with the start of treatment and after treatment. So uh, with this, I come to the end. I think the last keyword I got was mapping the future of Wildstrom. I think the future is, is bright. We have Wildstrom, one of the B-cell lymphomas, with, it's one of the most infrequent B-cell lymphomas when you, when you take all B-cell lymphomas. And it's the one where we have the most rapid progress, which is really fascinating and it's very encouraging. Yeah, despite it's rare, uh, I think uh, the, the progress is, is very fast in Wallenstrom with the developing of many, many new treatments. And I think the future of Wallenstrom will be that we will be even better able to individualize your treatment, to avoid chemotherapy, and to minimize toxicity. So with this, I wanted to stop. I think it took me a little bit longer. Sorry for this. And uh, I uh, give it back to Caroline. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Bosco. It was wonderful. Just an, a phenomenal presentation. And I know the questions for you, they were coming in. Um, so for you both and Dr. Trion. Um, before we take questions, so obviously everyone prepare for your questions. Um, I'm going to um, introduce um, Mr. Carl Harrington. Uh, Mr. Harrington is the, um, the IAWMF Board of Trustees, is chair of the Board of Trustees of the IAWMF, and he's going to uh, tell you a little bit about IAWMF's free programs and services, which um, I'm going to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Harrington. Thank you, Carolyn. On behalf of all the members, thank you, Dr. Buskey and Dr. Trian for providing us such clear information in a way that we can all understand. And I say we because like most of you who are listening, I'm also a WM patient. The IWMF is dedicated to a simple but compelling vision, a world without WM. We're going to accomplish that vision through a fanatical de devotion to our mission, support and educate everyone affected by Waldenstrom's while advancing the search for a cure. By everyone, we mean everyone. It doesn't matter where you live or whether you're a patient, a caregiver, or a friend, and all of our support services are free. But let me shift gears just a bit and have you think about the first name of our disease. If you, think, if you look at the name Waldenstrom's and just move that R and that O around, Waldenstrom's becomes Waldenstorms. And that's what it's like to have Waldenstrom's. There are always storms on the horizon, Waldenstorms. Now, what do I mean by a Waldenstorm? It could be anything, like a relapse and finding your need to choose a new treatment. It could be a worsening symptom like PN. It could be a worsening side effect like AFib or itchiness. Or you could be wondering how you and your family could possibly afford the new treatment you need. But no matter what the issue or concern is, turn to the IWMF. But of course, the biggest Walden storm ever is the coronavirus. You have to take this very, very seriously. Listen to the advice from WHO, from the CDC, and the health organizations in your country. But no matter what the Walden storm is you're facing, with the IWMF, you're never alone. Although we are a rare disease, thanks to our dedicated volunteers and our office staff, the IWMF is available to help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Call us, email us, chat with each other, just reach out whenever you need support or information. 
We now have 22 affiliates in 24 countries outside the U.S. that represent nearly half of the world's population. We have only over 65 support groups on a global basis. We have a network of volunteers on Lifeline who can talk one-on-one -on -one to you. Our materials are translated in at least seven languages and are available for free on our website. And our website at www.iwf.com can be viewed in over 100 languages via Google Translate. So disease facts or someone to talk to are only a click away on your computer or a telephone call away. If you need information, if you need support, we're here for you 24-7 with real human support from fellow WMers. With the IWMF, you are never alone, never. As you just heard from Drs. Trian and Busky, we're closer than ever to a cure with better treatments for WM, with fewer, fewer side effects and longer remissions. So on behalf of WMers everywhere, thank you, Dr. Trian, thank you, Dr. Busky, and thank you to Cancer Care for your help and support today. And uh, on a happy note, happy spring to those of you who are in the Northern Hemisphere. Back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Charrington. That was just wonderful and very inspirational. Thank you. And actually, um, I just want to say just a few words about Cancer Care. I'll say more at the very end of the call as well. But just that Cancer Care is an uh, organization that provides services nationally. Um, and we do it usually um, basic on the telephone or online. So we have a lot of different services from financial assistance programs to copay assistance, so the practical assistance. Um, we also, and those financial and copay are primarily for people in the United States. But we also do offer um, counseling services um, both on the telephone online and support groups on the telephone online. And on, on, I certainly have many programs on Waldenstrom's in terms of support for people, and as well as um, uh, online and telephone support groups as well. So um, with that being said, I think we're now going to move right on to the questions. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all our speakers on board. And why don't we see um, how many questions we can take? I know there are lots of you in queue, so we're going to do our very best. And Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from George W. Your line is open. Uh, thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, with the Waldenstrom's that I have, uh, I do have neuropathic, uh, neuropathy in my feet. And uh, <clears throat> although uh, Dr. Busky talked about the fact that neuropathy may come from other diseases or other uh, illnesses you may have, he didn't really speak to any neurological uh, reference to uh, the treatment for people specifically, specifically with neuropathy in their feet. Could he answer that and, and give some uh, insight into that? Thank you very much. Thank you for your question. And um, Ms. could you just address the neuropathy in feet and just um, any suggestions or tips? Yeah, of course, it's it's very it's a little bit difficult to um, um, to say something in, in in a very precise way. So, um, of course, um, when you have a neuropathy in your feet, first, um, as I said, um, I think the first step, of course, would be to be sure that it's Wadenstrom associated. So, um, it is, it is. Let, let, let's say Thank it you. is Wadenstrom associated. 
sorry. Let's yes, say it's values from associ associated, and, and this is um, very likely or in some way could be confirmed. Uh, then, of course, uh, what we then do is first to see whether the, the neuropathy um, has to be treated or not. So, uh, because not every mild neuropathy which has no dynamic is treated. So, we are quite offensive in treating patients uh, with neuropathy in Waldenström, but there are cases, let's say, where we ask the patient, so how much are you suffering? Uh, is, was this developing very quickly? What is the dynamic? Is it getting worse? And let's say when we have patients um, who say always no and say it's not really compromising my life, it's, I have it for a long time, it's not deteriorating, it might even be that we are not treating. So let's say that this compromises your quality of life and, and or it has a dynamic, so it's getting worse then it's an indication, clear indication for treatment. And as I said, we are, have the tendency to treat these neuropathies earlier than we perhaps did uh, 10 years ago. So, but Steve can, can comment on this. So when it's a Wallenstrom-associated neuropathy, of course, the reason for uh, this is the Wallenstrom disease itself. So this is why in, um, in that situation, we try to, to fight against the Wallenstrom. And many of these Wallenstrom, anti-Wallenstrom treatments, um, anti-cancer treatments, have also a positive effect on the neuropathy. It might be that, um, you know, the neuropathy um, does not disappear completely. This is very typical, yeah, that the neuropathy is not disappearing, but perhaps is, is getting better. And also patients... Um, um, experience that neuropathy is not getting worse, which in some way is also a success of treatment, although it's not very satisfying for the patient. So, meaning when a patient has a, uh, a neuropathy which gets worse and worse over time and you treat and this dynamic uh, is stopped by the Weidenstern treatment, then this is also a success of treatment. Uh, this this is a little bit, these are general statements, but I think it's, of course, a little bit difficult to be more precise. Um, but but uh, I, I would put it like this, but perhaps Steve wants to comment on this. Uh, I think you did a wonderful job there, uh, Christian, um, just elaborating on treatment of peripheral neuropathy. I think it's also important to say that uh, there are many different reasons, even for Waldenstrom patients, to have peripheral neuropathy. The most common reason is because the IgM protein is actually gnawing away at the myelin that surrounds the peripheral nerves. Uh, this can be diagnosed by either having an EMG study, electromyographic study, to see if there's a demyelinating pattern, uh, or you can even have sometimes a blood test done to detect the uh, myelin-associated glycoprotein or MAG uh, protein antibody. It is important um, to figure out what the reason is because therapy can sometimes be very different. Sometimes patients also have the neuropathy because of amyloid. This is a type of protein um, that accompanies the IgM that can also deposit itself in the nerves. We know that 
patients can also get neuropathy because of the cryoglobulins that I mentioned. And then there is this uh, small fiber neuropathy, which is very, 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 very difficult to treat. Um, we are still trying to figure out mechanistically um, how this occurs, uh, but it's important for for us to understand that there are many different mechanisms by which the neuropathy uh, can make itself um, present in patients with Waldenstrom, and this uh, may affect the way that we end up going tr uh, to tr treat a particular individual. So for the, for the gentleman um, on the phone who asked that question, you know, we probably would need to know a lot more before we can comment. Now, the one thing I, I do want to make mention is since IgM neuropathy is the most common, the strategy has been to try to knock down the IgM as much as possible and to keep it low so it doesn't actually bind and destroy the nerve. And rituximab by itself has been traditionally used, but I have to say, you know, kind of uh, disappointing long-term results. Uh, ibrutinib has shown remarkable activity, even in people that have seen previously rituximab, and now, you know, one of the strategies uh, that Christian, ourselves, and many others have worked on is to show that ibrutinib and rituxan can be combined uh, together. And, you know, this appears to be an important uh, new option for treating Waldenstrom patients. Conversely, if ibrutinib is not available, one can also combine other drugs like bendamustine with rituximab. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have a question from one of our online participants, um, uh, and that's for Dr. Trion. Um, does Muggis rate inflammation level? Does Muggis rate raise inflammation level? Will treatment for WM lower inflammation in the body? I'm not clear on that question, uh, Carolyn. Maybe one more time, um, if you could read it. Sure. Does Muggis raise inflammation levels? Will treatment for WM lower inflammation in the body? Yeah, so again, it's a pretty broad question. MGUS refers to monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance. And I guess the, the, the question around this is, do we see more inflammation in patients who have this? And, um, and you know, reducing it, will it make a difference? And I, and I have to say, it, it, that really is not a relationship that we typically see. We don't tend to see more inflammation necessarily because you have MGUS, and we wouldn't treat MGUS. Okay. And we have a question, which is a question that is coming up a lot, a number of the questions that are online. So I'll just, I'm going to start with this one, but it represents many questions, and I'll leave this for both Dr. Trion and Dr. Bosky to address. Um, I've been on watch and wait for six years with no symptoms, and I higher risk for current virus. I'm 73 years old. And the other question would be for people who are being treated also in terms of their risk. And so if you could just comment on this, that would be helpful. Dr. Trion, do you want to start? I, I, I'm, trying to, uh, I'm trying to understand the question one more time. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I've, been in, sorry. I've been in watch and wait stage for six years with no okay. symptoms, okay. and I at higher risk for current virus. I'm 73 years old. And then there are other questions from people who are in the midst of treatment, and they share a similar concern. About the COVID? Yes. Yeah. So I think in general, um, patients who are immunocompromised, um, 
That would include patients that um, you know have seen chemotherapy, and in some cases, people who haven't, because the immune system can, in fact, um, be affected by Waldenstrom's. We do see some of the protective antibodies, uh, like IgG and IgA levels, often being reduced uh, in people with Waldenstrom, even before they see any treatment. With treatment, you can even see them go further down. Uh, this could put those patients at higher risk uh, for the COVID-19 um, infection. So I think, you know, um, patients who, you know, fall in this category, we have to be uh, exceptionally uh, careful over. Um, by this, what I mean is really practice social distancing. Um, we have no um, current and effective therapy. Uh, what's out there now is, is uh, investigational. Um, this is why we all have to take this uh, extremely, extremely seriously. And communities that have successfully isolated their, uh, their, their um, you know, citizens have actually fared the best. Uh, I, for one, don't go see my mother anymore. I call her several times a day. Um, but it's because I want to protect her. And, um, and this is how we have to think right now in this uh, time and age. Um, I do want to comment on a couple of things. There are a number of, um, you know, new drugs that have been initiated, some of which I have to say we're very excited about. Remdesivir is an antiviral, uh, which is currently in a rapid phase three trial. Um, this has shown uh, activity uh, in, uh, in studies that have been done in China, but the larger studies that are being done now look very exciting. There's one um, in moderately compromised patients. There's another one in severe COVID-infected patients. There is uh, antibody, tocilizumab, that actually blocks interleukin-6. This has shown also uh, activity uh, in suppressing some of the um, uh, overimmune response that is seen to the virus. And this, unfortunately, is what's compromising a lot of patients' um, lung abilities. Um, this is also entering into trial. And very shortly, we'll also be launching a trial uh, looking at ibrutinib uh, in this situation because it also has the abilities to dampen the immune system. And I would be very curious uh, to learn from any patients who may have, um, you know, tested positive for COVID-19 that are on ibrutinib, uh, to please contact me. Um, I'd like to know how you're doing in particular. Um, but that's where we stand right now, Carolyn. Of course, there's the phase one vaccine trial that has also, you know, been kicked off in Seattle, but it's going to be a while before we have a uh, successful vaccine. And that's why what we can do now is, um, you know, really focus on sanitation, um, focus on um, social distancing, um, and that's where we stand today. So I wish all of you well, and please, please, please stay safe. Thank you I, very I, much. I can just, yes, Dr. yes. Yeah, I, I can just, um, you know, we in Germany, we are much more advanced in, let's say, this COVID-19 uh, problem. Um, and uh, uh, so the, the German Society for Hematology has already developed guidelines, official guidelines, how, how to, to how to deal with this. And actually, it's very similar to what what Steve said. So I think uh, so we categorize patients with Wildstrom. Um, in general, um, we put them more into the risk uh, patient group, 
because we anticipate that most of the violence from patients have some kind of immunosuppression. Um, what is also important is when, when they have really too low immunoglobulins that we are very generous in, in substituting immunoglobulins depending on the IgG um, levels in, 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 these, um, um, in this situation. I think what is also important to mention because we get so many questions is whether uh, when you are COVID-19 positive tested, uh, whether you should stop your cancer treatment or you should pause or whatever. I think there's a lot of uncertainty um, at the moment, and I think um, we have to state at least at, at this stage that when you have no symptoms but you are COVID-19 positive, but you are symptom-free, that you should uh, actually, of course, in close uh, uh, dialogue with your treating physician, that you should not stop your cancer treatment. So whenever COVID-19 becomes symptomatic, then I think we have the same situation as in other un controlled infections. And then, of course, you have to pause until you get symptom-free um, and or uh, even COVID-19 um, negative. So it's an ongoing, it's a moving field. Yeah, we don't have a lot of experience, but it said there are already you know, official guidelines uh, coming up for our um, colleagues also. Uh, and perhaps when you know this, you know more than your treating physician and you can tell them there are guidelines how to deal with this. Uh, importantly, you know, um, it should be avoided that as a reflex uh, um, that you do not take your uh, anti-cancer treatment, which is so so important for you. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I think, um, I think, uh, I hope everyone has heard how important this message is. So work, the work is being done here. Uh, Dr. Tran, you did say that people could contact you. How would you want them to contact you if they were um, actually uh, taking food in Edinburgh? Is there something that you wanted them to contact you? Yes, yes, please. Thank you for that. Um, my uh, email address is Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, underscore, so underline, and then Treon, T-R-E-O-N, and then symbol at, and it's uh, D for Danny, F for Frank, C for Charlie, I for India, dot Harvard, like the university, dot edu. And we will send that out to everyone when we send, you're all going to get an evaluation after the program today, and the evaluation will include this very important piece of information. And, um, and I will be sure that we have the correct um, information for the people who should be contacting Dr. Trion. Um, I actually want to thank our speakers. Um, it's, it's been an amazing call at a very difficult time in the history of the world to some extent, and I appreciate all of our participants as well. I know that you have many, many more questions to ask, and so um, I want to thank our participants, for those who asked questions, but for those who are actually waiting to get their questions answered. So um, I, um, we did say this would be a one-hour program, and so in fairness to all of you, um, so what I would suggest, if you do have questions um, after this call, of course you want to go to your healthcare team, absolutely. But in terms of a credible site to go to for information, um, IWMF is definitely um, an expert organization for you to contact. Their information is carefully embedded. They have excellent information, and you definitely want to get your information from them about any concerns you have about your treatment 
um, that would be a wonderful resource. We will be sending other organizational organizations out there to you as well in the evaluation. You'll get others to call, but I can't stress them. And if you wanted to get any type of emotional or social or practical support that you wanted to, you certainly can call Cancer Care. And all that information will be provided in the information we send out to you after the call. Again, and you've probably gotten it ahead of time anyway in the materials. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to, again, reiterate, we want you all to stay safe and, and practice social distancing. It's very important at this time. Um, and please take good care. And, uh, and thank you all. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a wonderful day.